1 Corinthians 15 when Paul talks about his preaching he says now I would remind you brothers of the gospel I preached to you which you received in which you stand and by which you are being saved if you hold fast to the word I preached to you unless you believed in vain I deliver to you as of first importance what I also received that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures that he was buried that he was raised and on the third day in accordance with the scriptures sorry and was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures but when we look at how he preached of first importance it's not there how do we equate what Paul writes describing how he preached with what Luke describes how he preached especially on something as central and as important as the death of the Lord Jesus Christ for our sins now you and I know that and you and I know it's really central to the gospel and so we tend to read it in all the time every time you see that Jesus died on the cross we say yes for our sins and so we just read it in whether it's there or not but the Christ was not expected to be the atonement that was the great shock to the Jewish world that the Christ was the servant the servant was expected to atone for the sins of the people not the Christ and yet they didn't preach that particularly although Paul says that's what we did preach how are we going to connect those two things and from pick it up Acts 20 verse 18 and when they came to him he said to them you yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews how I didn't shrink from here it is declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance towards God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ that's interesting really because we haven't got that that's the that's the column over here which is really how you respond to the gospel but he told them whatever was necessary he didn't hold back any information in order to get them to repent and believe repent towards God and have faith in Jesus is that what he was looking for in the evangelism and then he continues to speak of it now I'm going up to Jerusalem and I'm going to all kinds of dreadful things going to happen to me but verse 24 I don't count my life of any value nor as precious to myself if only may I finish the course of the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God now the word grace means generosity mercy so the gospel he says is about the mercy of God and the grace of God well we didn't put that up as a, a column but we could have put it up as a column couldn't we because lots of the passages do talk about forgiveness and mercy and God receiving you back or drawing near to God so we could have put that up as a column but we didn't I didn't and then now behold I know that none amongst who are gone about proclaiming the kingdom Oh, that's interesting. Now he's saying that what he is doing is proclaiming the kingdom. Well, that's not on the list either. Did anybody find him proclaiming the kingdom? Do you remember the word kingdom occurring in any passage that you read? 
Because I don't think it did. I mean, they're all about the Christ, and the Christ is the king, but the kingdom of God was not the passage. I think that's the only reference to kingdom in the book of Acts. But he saw what he was doing was proclaiming the kingdom. So in Paul's understanding of what he's doing, it seems slightly different to the way he, it is described as to what he did. How do we put these two things together? Come back to Mark, where Mark talks about what Jesus did. Here is Mark's reflection on Jesus' message. Mark chapter 1. Mark chapter 1. Edmund pointed to that wonderful verse 1 to start with, the gospel of Jesus, the Son of God. But verse 14, you see Jesus preaching. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, well, here it is. Here's the gospel of God. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Well, we've got repent and believe again. But nowhere do we have the time is fulfilled. Nowhere do we have the kingdom of God is at hand. But this is the gospel. Now, of course, Mark chapter 1 is a different situation, isn't it? But notice, Jesus doesn't mention being crucified. But it was the gospel. Jesus doesn't mention rising from the dead. But it is the gospel. So what is the gospel? You can leave out the atonement, basically. You can... You can leave out the crucifixion. You can preach it as the kingdom. You can preach it as the grace of God. What is the gospel? So come back to that passage in... Well, no, go to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. Don't worry, I'm not going to leave you in endless suspense, but I do want you to think and be troubled by this so that you will appreciate the answer. Romans 1... Verses 1 to 5, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. Okay, this is it. This is the authentic one. Which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Well, we did find that in a lot of the passages. Don't you remember that there was the prophet said, just as the prophet said, they often quote the Old Testament. Concerning his son who was descended from David according to the flesh. Now, remember the Son, the phrase Son of God does not mean God the Son. Son of God, God the Son. I'm a Son of God, but not even I think I'm God the Son. Not even my mother thought I was God the Son. Right? I mean, that's a different thing. God the Son is God. Son of God well, that is somebody who has God as their adopted father. Or that is the Messiah, because the Christ was the Son of God. And so, but he's the son descended from David. Well, now David was told that God's son, the Messiah, would come from his family. That's why around Christmas time there's so many references to David in the early chapters of Luke. Right? So, according to the flesh, he was the son of David. And was declared to be son of God in power. Ah, now I'm not the son of God in power. I'm the son of God by adoption, but I'm not the son of God in power. But Jesus is the son of God. That means he's the Christ. 
the ascended Christ, the conquering Christ, because the Son of God in power, according to the spirit of holiness, by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ and Lord. Jesus the Messiah, our Lord. Now that takes you to the day of Pentecost. You're right? Because the Holy Spirit comes, they then explain to you what's happening, and this Jesus whom you crucified, God has made both Christ and Lord by his resurrection from the dead. So the gospel, it's about the resurrection, but it's about Jesus ruling as the Christ. Well, that fits in with the passage in uh, uh, Thessalonica and, and in, in um, Corinth, wasn't it, where he was in the synagogue telling them that the Christ has to suffer and die and Jesus has suffered and died because he is the Christ. So his, his argument from the Old Testament about who is the Christ comes from suffering and dying and rising again, right? And so the resurrection proves Jesus is the Christ, which is what the day of Pentecost was about, which is what we have here. So, well then we come to that passage mentioned earlier, 1 Corinthians 15, 1 Corinthians 15. First importance, that he died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, and that he was raised in accordance with the scriptures. This emphasis on the scriptural fulfilment is very important to them, isn't it? Because they keep on referring to it. That is, the context by which you can understand what Jesus did is the Old Testament scriptures. Um, the, the event of Jesus doesn't just happen. The event of Jesus happens in the context of the Old Testament. And so when he's arguing for it, he's arguing from the Old Testament, which is why Rachel was right to challenge me about how could he argue for the resurrection without judgment because the place he's arguing from is the scriptures. And the scriptures, the Old Testament scriptures on the resurrection, um, Ezekiel 34, Daniel 12, connects resurrection and judgment. So though it's not spelt out, it must have been. However, dying for our sins, come across to 2 Corinthians chapter 4, 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Corinthians, I've shot past it. Come back, come back. Where Paul talks about his own ministry, and he says in verse 5, For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. So our role, our place is to be servants of you, but our message is, Jesus is Messiah and Lord. Which would be a general Greek way of saying Jesus is King. Which is a general way of saying the Kingdom of God has come. Now, the things are connected, but it's the way he says it. The Lordship of Jesus was the Gospel, was his work. But if you go over the page to chapter 5 verse 13, we come back into atonement language very strongly in chapter 5 verse 13 to 20. So we read, For we are, if we are beside ourselves, it's for God, 
And if we are right in the right mind, it's for you. For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one died for all and therefore all have died. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Well, you've got the death of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus, and you've got the atonement in dying for all that all have died. It's there. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh. We regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone's in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who, through Christ, reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That, that is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Well, there's another way of understanding the gospel. Another way of understanding the apostolic preaching. God is reconciling, put, putting to right, the relationship between himself and the world. That's what God is doing. He did it through Jesus and he's now doing it through us preaching the gospel. That's what he's doing. And so God was in, the, God was in Christ Jesus, reconciling the world to himself. And that means not counting their sin against them. But he explains it even further, verse 20. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us, we implore on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him, who knew no sin, so that in him, we might become the righteousness of God. Now there is a classic, absolutely full-on atonement language. Right? Our sin laid on him so that he became sin, so that in him we could become righteous. So the explanation of our reconciliation message is the atonement. Still we have the puzzle. How do these things all hang together? Right. What, what do I need to say to preach the gospel? What do I not have to say? What is the gospel? There is the topic for tonight. And now I'm going to try and help you answer those questions. You want to ask questions about it before we go any further? Understood what the problem is, what the issue is that we're trying to wrestle with? The gospel is not to be defined by its extremity, but by its centre. Here is the core of the message. Some people hate things being done graphically, other people love it. But I have found the wonders of modern technology. See, the gospel is the word of God, and because it's the word of God, it's not fixed. It's living. Look at that, eh? Hey. <laughs> Who could believe that I could find something like that to do? Uh, but it's a living gospel. So starting off by saying, I'm going to define the gospel and put the limits around it. Well, that's a bit dodgy when the very thing you're talking about is itself alive. Right? That's, you don't do it by the extremities. You do it by the core of the gospel. 
But when you live by the gospel, there's a whole set of, of implications that flow from it. That is, the gospel is at the core and centre of it. I'm sorry, my limitations in, in electronic work is now going to be shown to you, because you're supposed to just see a completely gradual change from deep red to white through pink. I, I couldn't do it. I tried, but you know, that's, just imagine that it just goes without any variation, so that you can't actually see where one bit stops and another starts. There you are, the gospel you see, but the gospel has all kinds of truths about it that without this truth the gospel can't make sense but you don't but those truths are not the gospel themselves necessarily and around that actually is a whole set of behavior that flows from the gospel and so the gospel would teach you uh, love joy peace 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 patience kindness goodness self-control that's not the gospel <laughs> But they are truths that come from the gospel that issue forth in behavioural changes. So the gospel is to be defined, well, if you're going to try and describe it, it's the core. Being living and active, the core that changes your mindset and your behaviour as well. What we're going to try and understand is, well, what, what is the core message of the gospel? All on board so far. I'm going to show you another image soon that changes the, the landscape. Here we go. Are you ready? Truth is circular. Now, the study of knowledge is one of the great difficulties of philosophy. Those of you who know philosophy, epistemology is always the pits of a subject because how do you know what you know? One of the great theories of knowledge uh, is the whole concept uh, of coherence. That to be true, it needs to be part of a coherent passage. To actually, you can't believe contradictory things at the same time. It doesn't work. That anything that is part, because the trouble with coherence as a philosophy of knowledge is tales of fairies can be coherent that doesn't make it true. How does a circular story that justifies itself, how do you know that's what the real world is about? Well, second term I'm going to deal with that side of it when we look at apologetics and a whole range of other topics. Just for this sake though tonight, to be the circle of truth, to be truth it has to be circular. Truth is self-justifying. and that, that's just a, The Bible says the Bible is the Word of God. You know, well, that's circular. Yeah, well, that's the nature of truth. Because you can't know anything without certain presuppositions, and those presuppositions you only know because they fit in with the other presuppositions. And knowledge, how humans know anything, is a deep mystery. It's a very difficult thing. We know we know, but how do we know what we know? The circularity of truth is really important. And of course, being God's truth, it also is living. Uh, it's not going to sit still either. So you can't just... It's just incredible. My, do you know how many hours that took? Uh, anyway, right, so the circularity of truth is really important. But the circularity of truth has all kinds of wonderful consequences for us.
all kinds of wonderful consequences when it comes to preaching the gospel. Because being circular, any part of it implies the rest. So if you leave a little bit of the ark out, because it's circular, you can draw what the rest of the ark is. If it wasn't circular, you couldn't. But it has to be self-justifying. It has to be consistent within itself. It has to cohere. If it doesn't, well, it's not the truth. And so here is the issue, you see, of truth. It's circular. And that's terrifically important, you see. Do I have to cover all these things in order to preach the gospel? No. I only have to cover one of them accurately because the one I cover accurately implies the rest. Mind you, if I don't cover it accurately, then well, I haven't got the truth, have I? And then the implications won't flow. And so I just need to speak some of the circle, a little part of the arc. My brothers and sisters, this is wonderful when you're preaching the gospel to people, isn't it? When you try, because you think, oh, I haven't covered point three yet. I must cover point. No, you don't have to. If you can just get across the judgment, you can tell people to repent and believe. The judgment's coming. You need to repent, you need to change, and you need to trust God for salvation. That's the gospel. Well, you're only talking about the death of Jesus. You don't have to explain creation. You just say, Jesus died for your sins. You're a sinner. You know you're a sinner. And you need to have your sins paid for. Right? There's all kinds of things. Uh, uh, adoption. Yes. Isn't it wonderful? God is gracious. He adopts sinners into his family. And you know how he does that? Well, he does that through the death of Jesus. Now, I haven't explained creation. I haven't really explained sin much. I've just mentioned it. I've talked about the grace of God. I can talk about any part of the circle of truth because in talking about that part, I'm implying the rest. If they give me enough time, 2,000 years, I'll spell it out. How would you do that with just saying creation? Oh, creation, it's fantastic. God has created the universe. And because he's created the universe, we need to be right with him. You need to turn back to God, don't you? Now, if he turns back to God, I can say, you know you'll be forgiven. Well, he can say to anybody, well, how do I know I'll be forgiven? Well, I tell you, Jesus was sent it. But I don't have to say all that bit. If I can get him to turn back to God, this is wonderful. So in Acts 14, where he challenges the people in Lystra, he doesn't go on to talk about Jesus' death or resurrection much. He just talks about the creation. Right? So any part that is told truthfully implies the rest. Now, it's easiest for you to think of it, those who can think this way, mathematically, isn't it? And once you've understood the basic premises of maths, then any part of maths implies every other part of maths. Right? You don't have to go every time back to the basic premises. The whole system's built coherently. That's why it fits. Every now and then people come with a problem that doesn't fit, and then the whole world goes ballistic as they try and get PhDs solving the problem. And after 20, 30 years, they've solved a couple of big problems of recent times, which have been sick. Because they know there's a solution because truth is coherent. <laughs> well, if you then know the circle, you can tell which 
arc does or doesn't fit. So, E clearly and manifestly doesn't fit, does it? That's because I found a little bit where I could draw, so I tried to draw an arc. That is my arc that I drew. And I thought, oh, well, I might as well leave it and show how stupid I can be, right? Because uh, I couldn't draw an arc. Okay, testing on the ABCD. Ready? Hands up those who think A fits. Hands up those who think A doesn't fit. Okay, what about B? Hands up those who think B fits. Hands up those who think B doesn't fit. <laughs> C, hands up those who think C fits. No one. Hi. You do. <laughs> You're wonderful, Emily. And oh, hands up those who think it doesn't fit, just to make sure that we've got hands. Yes, good. Uh, what about D? Hands up those who think D fits. And those who think D doesn't fit? Okay, you can test yourself now. The only one that doesn't fit is C. All the others I just drew from there, pulled it out, and you can slide them back up and down to get them in, right? If you've got a really good perception of the arc, you'll, of the circle, you'll see an arc and say, oh yeah, that fits. And you'll see another arc and say, no, that's, that's not right, that can't be true. So it is with the gospel. If you've got a really good grasp of the core of what it's all about, then you hear people speak and you say, he, he hasn't got it. That's wrong. That's, that doesn't fit. Right? Or you'll say, yeah, that's the truth. I hear that. I recognise it because it fits in with the gospel. And so it's, it's, it's that, I always forget, it's the oboe, isn't it? Who at the beginning of a concert, they get to play the note A, and then the rest of the orchestra tunes up to that note. Now, of course, they're professional musicians, and so, well, I'm talking about professional concerts, I suppose the school band doesn't do so well. Um, they're professional musicians, so they really have that note clearly in their head. So they can change their cello, they can change their violin, they can tune their, their clarinet until they all are on note, which is... Well, it's the same here. If you really got the gospel clear, you say, oh, yeah, I need to tune that. That idea doesn't fit. This idea does fit, doesn't fit. See, for many years I was a Christian, but I was what is called an Arminian. An Arminian believes in free will. And then I had this discussion with some brothers and sisters about this, and I realised it doesn't fit. And so I had to change what I thought about free will to be conformed to the sovereignty of God. It's a change that was necessary. If I'd hung on to it, then I would be like number C, and I'd be out of touch. Now, none of us have the circle perfect, but the longer you go teaching and preaching the gospel and reading the Bible, the more accurate you'll be with that bit. And you don't have to preach the whole gospel to preach the gospel. You just have to preach accurately whatever part of the Bible you're teaching. And it implies the rest. And if you let me go long enough, I'll show you how it implies the rest. My brother Esau, he was a hairy man, but I, I am a smooth man. 
said Jacob. Could I preach the gospel from that verse? Yes, of course I could. But we've got to hear some other things tonight. <laughs> How long do you want to be here? <laughs> you see, before you can actually get there. Because it teaches the sovereignty of God. Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. And from anyway, I'll give you another day, my brother Jake. And so, we're going to turn over to hearing about the doctrine of sin. And our local expert on the topic of sin is Ed. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for being with us tonight and thank you, Father, for uh, the opportunity of meeting with each other and sharing with each other. Thank you for meeting new people. Thank you, Heavenly Father, for the chance to think yet again about the gospel and to clarify our minds. Thank you for John Chapman and the way that we reside on the great work that he did in yesteryear in training up so many people. We thank you for his great book, Father, and we do pray that you'd help us to know uh, what to say and how to say it as we seek to explain the gospel to other people. And so, Father, we do thank you for this night and for our fellowship together and pray, Father, that we may indeed continue this week in service of you. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. More room, unless COVID strikes this week in Sydney, we're not under the uh, mask rules and we're not under the uh, four square metre rules and so this room can take more people. Invite your friends. Love to have them along, whoever it may be. That'd be really good.